scripturing this evening comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Evening, church. Everybody get a nap today? Oh, I didn't either. I could have used one. I'm feeling it tonight, but we'll try to finish strong. This is our final lesson in the series of foundations that we've been walking through. We've been trying to reason together, to come together, to think together, to consider things together. Uh, to reason about the major questions of life. Um, Everybody has, whether you like it or not, an answer to these major questions um, because we live based upon these beliefs. We live out of these beliefs. And what we're trying to do is build a worldview. The way that you view the world, the way that you operate in the world, it's called a worldview based upon the revealed truth of Scripture and what ultimately is the Word of God, what we know as Jesus Christ, who is the rock, which is a foundation upon which if you build your beliefs upon Him, if you uncover and dig deep and expose the truth of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, and understand who God is, and build your life upon that, that when catastrophe comes, your house will stand, that it won't fall down, that it won't crumble, and most certainly you'll be able to survive. And that's what we want to be able to do so that Uh, as it is inevitable that you and I will experience difficulty in life, that our worldview will not crumble when we face that. A worldview is constructed. It's built by answering five basic questions that everybody, when asked upon, could come up with some answer that they have within themselves. They've probably learned this through uh, observation, through um, the, the nurturing that they received in their home as they grew up, probably through some education. We answer these basic five questions this way. Number one, the question is, where did I come from? Where did you come from? What do you think about that? When I ask you, where did life, where did human beings and where did you come from? How do you answer that question? We've proposed in this series at the very beginning that we were brought forth, human beings were brought forth by a holy, that means distinguished, different than anything else, Trinitarian, three is one, God of love. 
brought forth the universe. Out of love, for love, to give love. Number two, so that's where did I come from. Number two, why am I here? What's your purpose in life? You know, whether you think about this question or not, you are churning on some purpose. Whether it's for your family, uh, trying to build a successful, um, maybe a marriage and children in a home. Maybe it's your career. Uh, maybe it's uh, prestige, honor, social power, wealth. It could be something, but you are churning on the track of some purpose. And so if I asked you, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? Um, You've got to have an answer to that question. And we propose that the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that human beings were here to enjoy the relationship of love with their God and with their fellow mankind. That we were created for that. To enjoy being loved by God and then giving love to His people. And what's funny is uh, all psychological research that's been done that I've been able to come across and see, um, they, they've done things called the happiness study. You ever heard of those? Like uh, I think um, uh, MIT just did one and, and Harvard did one where they um, give a certain group of people $5 and say, you get to spend this on yourself today. And then they give another group of people $5 and say, you have to find somebody to give this to. And, and just the evidence that explodes of people's joy and happiness going exponentially high when they're in the group that says they get to give to people. That we were created. Why am I here? To enjoy being loved by God and to return that love to Him and to give that love to others. Okay, question number three. We've got to go because I know... My clock on the iPad now is running. I need to show you what Matt and I are exposed to right now. (laughs) A running clock. I told them, this is a challenge to see how long I can go. So in my head, I'm chanting, go, go. Oh, it just changed. Put it back. There there it is. (laughs) It just reminded me, I got to go because I'm already burrowing down in the intro and we we got lots to do. Question number three, constructing your worldview, how you see the world. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with you? How do you answer that question? When you watch the news on television, you see that a murder took place or somebody was wronged or there's an injustice here or something happens to you or you do something deceitful or wrong. How do you answer the question of what's wrong with the world? Is it more education, better parenting? What's the answer? Um, or I'm sorry, what's wrong with the world? What, what is the problem? And we propose from Genesis 3 that it's self-exalting, individualized autonomy, which the Bible calls sin, which means I live for me, and I'm a cyclone of self, and I'm going to crash into other cyclones of self. That's sin, and that's what we propose as what's wrong with the world. Question number four, how is that problem fixed? And we said that's redemption, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is received to us through the process of continual faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Trusting that there's somebody that loves you more than you so that you can repent of your self-exalting, individualized autonomy. Continually repenting and trusting. Repenting and trusting in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And the last question is what we're going to answer tonight is what is all this for? What's the end game, right? If I've just proposed to you this entire philosophical worldview that I gather from the Scripture, from God, what's the end game? What's the point? What's the purpose of all this? 
And here's the interesting thing. Everybody answers this question. You might not answer it in your 20s or 30s or 40s, but you get close to the end of your life and you start thinking about what was the point of my life and was it all worth it? Is what I invested my entire life in, was it worth it? What was all of it for? I've seen many people with grief on their deathbed in that state and many people with deep, abounding joy that it was worth it. What was it all for? And so like the rest of the series, what we're going to do is look at not just observing the world, but revealed truth from God to shape our minds about this question of what is the end game? What is all of this for? And that's a serious question that especially those that were raised in church have to answer because a lot of times our end game is to just make sure the generation in front of us or that is older than us is just happy with us. That's not a good enough end game to survive in Christianity. In fact, that's not Christianity. And so what's the end game of all of this for you? There's a very important filter that we've got to run our study through tonight. So I want to tell you that and then we'll get into it. Paul told Timothy... In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he was talking about Scripture there. Uh, you were with us a few months ago. Robbie preached from this text, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And what Paul, the apostle, told the young preacher Timothy is that all of the Scripture that you have is very, very good. It's from God. But here's what he said it's for. It's supposed to be used to create doctrine and reproof and correction and training. That's what it's supposed to do. For two reasons. So that you and I would be instructed in righteousness and then equipped to engage and serve. And so we're going to talk tonight about the doctrine of heaven. And what's sometimes troublesome about the doctrine of heaven is that there's a massive amount of information, amount of theory, amount of theology, amount of philosophy that floats around when we talk about heaven that has nothing to do with us, that has nothing to do with life, that has nothing to do with what we're doing in life. It's just a bunch of hypothesis, okay? So I want to take the doctrine of heaven and run it through the filter that Paul said we're supposed to run our doctrines through and say, does it help us in instruction of righteousness? And does it equip us to serve? Does it do that? The doctrine of heaven was a powerful doctrine in the first century. And I think it needs to be dusted off, as Matt would say, or recovered so that we can have the same usefulness. If you look in the New Testament, how many times Paul or Peter or John, like he does here at the end of chapter 22, would cry out, and this is what the first century church did so often, they were crying for Jesus Christ to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. They longed for and looked for based upon this doctrine of heaven. So I'm going to do two things with us tonight. We're going to look at the promises of heaven and then the power of heaven, why it impacts us. So the doctrine of heaven, the promises that we see in Scripture about heaven, and you'll notice that tonight I'm not going to deal a lot with um, what's called eschatology or the study of end things like the millennial reign and tribulation. Right now is not the time for that. If any of you have questions about that, I'd be happy to study with you to go into theology about that. But tonight I want us to think about the purposefulness of the doctrine of heaven and that we're going to see that from the promises what has God promised about heaven and then why that matters to us the power of heaven so let's start with the promise Uh, in your scripture that Jeff read for us in chapter 21 there's a promise that overarches the rest of the promises here in verse 5 it says and he who is seated on the throne said this he said behold I am making 
all things new. I'm making all things new. I want to propose to you that, that the general concept, the general principle of the promise of the world to come, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, revolves around this idea of that one who I believe is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, coming down, and he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. It's the making of all things to becoming new. We're going to see four ways that this happens tonight. Number one, he's going to make things spiritually and morally new. Spiritually and morally, that's number one. You see, spirituality and morality in our world right now is absolutely, for the believer, a source of frustration. If you look without yourself, look outside of yourself and look into the world, you would probably echo the thoughts of Paul when he said that there are evildoers that grow worse and worse. Don't we just hear that over and over like the rhetoric, like, like every generation that sort of cycles through. You get maybe a little bit older and you start looking down on the generation coming and you get worried about the world, right? And you see sin growing worse and worse. And yet there are some ways that it's you know, shaping its way to become more and more like the kingdom of God. And in some ways you look to the world and you're just like, man, these things are falling apart, right? Things are growing worse and worse. So it's a source of frustration that there's not moral perfection in this world, that there's not spiritual perfection in this world. But that problem doesn't just exist as we look without or outside of ourselves, most certainly as Paul did, as he looked within himself. He also was frustrated with the moral imperfections in his own life. Romans 7 is one of that famous texts where Paul was wrestling back and forth. And he said at the end of that, basically his conclusion was, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? I want it gone. Paul was vexed with the sin that still existed in the world, both outside of himself and within himself. I think that's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he was longing for, that he couldn't wait to put off this tent, this temporary part of his life that he called his body. So the answer of heaven is this, both outside of you, there's a renewal, there's a new, a, a new spirituality, a new morality. Look down in chapter 21, read with me 23 through 27, listen how um, John describes this scene. He says, the city has no need of sun or moon or sh or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is, is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. No danger. And there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so what he's concluding here, his thought, is that the new Jerusalem has come out of heaven down to this place that they're calling the new earth. And there are four walls. And he says the gate of that place, nothing detestable is going to enter into that place. And so externally, that this morality is going to be renewed to freshness, that nothing detestable, nothing dishonest, nothing false, nothing sinful is going to exist in this place. But at the same time, the answer is not just outside of ourselves, that there's also going to be a new morality within ourselves. Look in verse 2 of chapter 21. He says, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, here's the analogy that, Paul, that, that is often used, a bride adorned for her husband. 
Okay, now go to verse 9 through 11. Anytime we're talking about a bride ready for her husband, we're most likely talking about the church and Christ coming together to dwell together. In verse 9 it says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's the church, that's us. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There's a picture again. Now listen to verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I believe this point right here is what made the first century Christians long so desperately for heaven. That they knew that the coming of Jesus would be the renewal of themselves. That they would shed sinful flesh and be made in the perfection of Christ. And for those that long to be like Christ, the coming of Christ is the greatest gift that we could have. That we would shed this flesh. And so, uh, there's going to be a renewal spiritually and morally. Number two, there's going to be a renewal. Jesus Christ is making all things new, both bodily and relationally. So my body, and then as we exist relationally. Let me finish this point number one by just saying this, a sum, summation sentence, that all that is wrong morally will be made right in the new heavens and new earth. Number two, bodily and relationally. Um, I think one of the most important things we can learn about heaven is that we are not going to be this disembodied spirits that just kind of like float around all over the place. Um, In fact, that thought was propagated by Plato in the way that he understood the body and the spirit. Uh, He saw the body as detestable. And so he believed that we would just float away and live in these disembodied spirits that would just kind of float all over the place. And that has worked its way into Christian doctrine. But when you study the Bible, it really doesn't present Um, this disembodied spirit that floats all over the place. In fact, the Bible is very serious about a bodily resurrection from the grave. That's actually one of the most beautiful things about Christianity that is different than any other religion in the world, that it doesn't call the body something that is absolutely evil. In fact, Jesus' body was raised from the dead. Okay, and so we see um, in Philippians chapter, I'm sorry, verse 4, look in verse 4 here quickly. And He will wipe away in this new heaven and new earth, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What He's describing is things that a body would do. Wiping away tears, and no more mourning, and no more crying. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His body, in Romans chapter 6 says, in the same way that Jesus was raised, you and I will be raised. For more of this, you can look into 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about our bodies being sown in a temporary manner but being raised in an eternal fashion. Philippians 3 is probably one of the best places you can see the first century church crying for this. In verse 20 when he said this, that we wait for a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Okay. So, it's not only a bodily renewal, but it's also a relational um, renewal. Not only will everything that our bodies suffer, disease, deformities, death, all the things that a body suffers will be done away with. It will be gone. And then this new heaven and new earth will have a body that does not decay in the way that this one does. So we have a bodily renewal. We have a relational renewal. 
culturally. You notice that he says in chapter 22 and chapter 21 at the end there that kings will dwell together and that nations will come in and out. It's a beautiful picture that I don't believe in the new heaven and new earth that we're going to erase the concept of cultural difference, that we're going to have differences, that we're going to look different, that we might have different things about us. He says that there's going to be kings that are there. In fact, in chapter 22, verse 3, he says that there's going to be a tree and its leaves are for the healing of the nations, plural. See, what I think happens in the new heaven and the new earth is wiping away all the things that make us combat with each other. It does away with all of that. There's going to be a healing of the nations. And so relationally, we're not going to have cultural barriers anymore. Culture is not going to just stop us from being close to each other. Race won't stop us from being close to each other. There's not going to be those barriers of physicality that make us look at each other and say, we can't be with that person. And so we'll all be not done away with, but healed. And I would say it this way to summarize bodily and relationally, that all that is broken, both bodily and relationally, will be healed. Number three, there's going to be a new creation. So the Bible um, doesn't really speak. Let me pause and say this. One of the things I did to get ready for this sermon at the very beginning, like I always do, is I sit down with a white blank sheet of paper and then usually go into the text and then go into some word study and start to uncover as much as I can and make marks and and try to understand what we're trying to preach and then consult some other sources and then try to make sense of that and present that to you. What I decided to do with heaven and earth and, 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 and this idea of doctrine of heaven was sit down and and start writing on a blank piece of paper, what do I think heaven really is? No influences. And I'll ask you to think about doing that. It was very hard for me to do. In fact, the paper sat blank for about 30 minutes. I was afraid to actually like scribe it to paper because then I was like, am I sure about this? What do I really think about heaven? Well, one of the things that I had in my mind that I just knew when, as I read the Scripture is not really accurate, but it was always in my mind, was this concept that I would somehow be like transported like some quantum leap to a whole other solar system. Anybody have that imagination about heaven? Really, the, the Bible doesn't actually speak that we're going to be like snatched away to this new solar system. It doesn't really speak of it that way. It's more like a restoration project or like a a creation of a new heaven and a new earth, what that earth will be like, I'm not totally sure, but all the imagery points back to this idea of really like Eden being restored. So let me give you a couple scriptures. Romans Romans chapter 8, verse 21 speaks of creation being set free from the curse or the bondage that it was placed under in Genesis chapter 3. Remember the curse after Adam and Eve sinned? That they were going to then have to work by the sweat of their brow. And so the earth was cursed. It no longer just produced fruit, but produced thorns and weeds and made life difficult. And so uh, Romans 8 says that even creation longs to be set free from that. The text that I, wanna, I want you to consider with this is 2 Peter chapter 3, um, verse, starting about verse 5. Well, let's go to verse 4. It says this. So 2 Peter 3, verse 4, says, They will say, Where is the promise? These are scoffers to Christians, suffering Christians. Scoffers are going to say this. Where is the promise of His coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, kind of a similar scoff that we might face today, like, like, oh, this is all going to pass away. Things are just continuing like they never stopped. And so here's what Peter says. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that heaven existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Do you see the language he's using? When he says the world that existed perished, what he's talking about is the pre-Noah world full ridden of sin. The system of the world that was operating, that lived under sin. He said that's, that was just perished under water. Now verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with one day the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, the elements, how many of you have the word elements there? And the elements will be burned up and dissolved. Do you have that in your Bible? The elements will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be, what do you have in your Bible? Burned up, right? Um, the way the ESV reads that is exposed. It will be refined, it will be taken through a fire. So here's what I want you to see from this. At the coming of Jesus Christ, at the roar from heaven, the trumpet, the heaven, and the heavens roll back and down descends Jesus. At that time, in 1 Corinthians 3, it also describes this fire that everybody will pass through. He says this, that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be burnt up and dissolved. That word elements does not mean like the periodic table that you would see in science class. It does not mean like, like, like the molecules and the elements of the world that make up the dirt and the grass and the trees. What he's talking about there, if you trace that word through all of Peter and Paul's writings, what he's talking about is the elemental rudimentary principles by which the world operates. The rudimentary basic principles by which the world looks and says this is how life is supposed to be lived. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's how the world, the cosmos, works. And when you love the world, you love lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And he says at the coming day, all of that's going to be exposed and laid bare. That it was false, that it didn't work, that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life was a broken system that led to death. That's what the elements there mean. Now the earth, you see he says the, the, the elements will be burned up, and then the earth, that means the, the actual earth, and the works that are done in it. The sin, the evil, will be destroyed. Here's all I have to say about that. I don't know if this physical earth is actually going to like physically be burned up and God's going to just make a whole new one. I don't think that really is what matters because what he gets to is verse 11. He says, since this is true, that the rudimentary principles of sin are going to be exposed someday, what kind of person ought you to be? That someday, if you think by living by the system of this world is going to work for you, it's going to all be exposed and that is not going to work. 
The point of the coming of Jesus Christ and the fire that's going to burn up and expose and disintegrate all that is not real life is that you might come to an awareness that I should quit living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life and live for God. So, whether this means that we're going to have a new material world, I don't know, or a rehabilitated Eden, it does seem that Revelation chapter 22 is pointing us back to some imagery language of Eden, where we'll go back to dwell with God. But I can say this, that all that is cursed will then be set free. All that is under the curse of sin will be set free. Let me give you the last one. The promise of heaven is that we'll actually have the fullness of a relationship with God. In verses 3 and 4, if you look there, he says, look, look at the words that he uses here. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. And it goes on to say this more and more about what He'll do with us. So the sin that continues to keep God at bay from this world will finally be gone. And you and I will be able to see the full glory of who God really is. We'll see Him, as the Bible says, face to face. And that glory that we see in Him will no longer cause us to fall to our face and just die, but be able to worship Him. You see, in a sense, we have God with us as we were promised through Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit, and then Christ is the Spirit that's in us. But as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, as long as I'm in the body, I'm absent from the Lord. And later he would say that he, he longs to be with the Lord in Philippians chapter 1. To, to depart and to be with Him is greater for Him, is what he would say. But the relationship with God is the ultimate promise of heaven. That God is there in fullness, that we're dwelling with Him, that we're there with Him. And so I would summarize it this way, that all that is separated will finally be reconciled. Let me finish this with why does it matter? Why does um, a doctrine of heaven matter? What does the doctrine of heaven do for you? And kind of a simple answer, and not, to, not meant to be you know, crass or anything, is this, that the doctrine of heaven does nothing for you if you don't think about it. And this will probably be the most convicting point for myself as I studied this the last few weeks, is that what does the doctrine of heaven do for you? Well, absolutely nothing if you don't take time to think about it. It changes you no way, shape, or form. In fact, I find that much of my Christian thought has to do with how I'm a Christian here with very little with what's to come. And so the doctrine of heaven can do much for you if we take time to actually think about it. What's to come? Let me give you a couple answers. Uh, the power of heaven. So we've looked at the promise. Now the power of heaven is that it will actually transform you. It will change you. The more you dwell on heaven, the more eternally minded you'll finally become. Do you know how much of our life is spent thinking about temporary things? How much of our anxiety and worries and fears are bound up in things that just are very, very temporary? So dwelling on heaven empowers us to be more eternally minded. As John said, as we think this, we'll, we'll definitely be purifying ourselves. And so a life that is guided by an eternal scope becomes one that is transformed. Um, one of the things that I studied as I was doing my education degree is what poverty really is. And we were learning this as poverty in education, um, how different people learn and how to interact with different people. And it was explained this way that I thought was so brilliant. It said this way, that poverty 
is a prison that captures you to just think about today. So they were talking about socioeconomic status, but one of the things they noticed about the mentality of people that stay inside poverty is that they only think about just today. And so if you've got $10 or $100 or $1,000, you're just going to use that today. And so you just continue to stay stuck. And I would say this, that being eternally poor makes you only think about just today. But you just don't think about anything beyond this without an eternal scope of life. Number two, not only will heaven transform you, it will satisfy you. It will satisfy you. The more eternally minded you become, the less satisfied you'll be with temporary things. The more you saturate and dwell and think about the promise of what's to come, the less you'll rely on temporary things to be your full satisfaction. You'll become satisfied in heaven, not in what's temporary. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. How many temporary things are you going to continue to consume to try to fill this void that heaven is trying to plug? Oh, we abuse and use so many gifts from God as temporary gods to try to fill us when we could just set our minds on things above, like Paul said, to satisfy us, knowing that something good is about to come. You know, I think our hearts testify to the concept of heaven. Even if you didn't believe the doctrine and the teaching, the scriptures that I've shared with you tonight, I believe our own hearts testify to the concept of heaven as we long for something more perfect, something better, something right, something just. And our hearts ache when those things are not fulfilled. I think we long for heaven. Thinking about heaven and the power of it will also calm you. The less satisfied you are in the, with the world and temporary things, the more you will long for one to come. And so when you suffer wrong or injustice, or you have something wrong happen to you, the less you'll feel like this has to be made right, made right for me right now because you know that you have something better coming so it can calm you. That not every injustice that happens to you has to be rectified in that moment. That you don't have to go grab every single person and get them on your side and get them against somebody else so that the wrong that happened to you is now made right. You can relax. You can calm down because you know that there's going to be all things that were made wrong will be made right. I think you'll find in the doctrine of heaven the endurance to suffer well. Boy, in American Christianity, we don't talk very much about suffering well. We talk about ending suffering, we talk about finding comfort, but we rarely talk about how to suffer well. And heaven will empower you to do that. And the last thing I would say is this, is that heaven ought to empower you or cause you to engage in this world. The more hope you have, for the world that is to come, the more you'll be compelled to participate in bringing it here. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, when Jesus taught us how to pray, He said, Our Father is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And the more you long for heaven and that world to come, the more you will be willing to participate in bringing every element of heaven to this place, every element of justice, every element of right. And so, have you ever heard that phrase, um, some, some people are just so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? Have you ever heard that phrase? You're just so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. 
You just think about heaven all the time, and, and this is one of the challenges of the doctrine of heaven when we think that this world doesn't matter, and earth doesn't matter, and people don't, we just have to hang on, white-knuckle this thing until we escape through some quantum leap to a different solar system that doesn't call you to engage in anything in this life. You just hang out by yourself and just hope you make it. But when you understand heaven this way, I believe it will draw you to participate in eradicating injustice, oppression, poverty, or even sin. It calls you to do that because you don't want to see that anymore. You want to participate in the world that is to come. So the frequent question that when we talk about heaven that we always get is this. What about hell? Do you believe in it? This is a major question that most people are asking today, and you have to ask yourself, are you ready to answer that? Do you believe in a literal, eternal place of torment, of hell? You see, in the beginning, we were given free will to choose. You can see this in Adam and Eve. They were given commandments. They were given a beautiful dwelling, but they had the choice to submit lovingly and relate to God and they chose opposite. Luke 15 is a great portrait of this where you have two sons. One chooses to go afar. The other chooses to stay, but he's not close to the father. And you have one return. And he's repenting. And the father kills the fatted calf and throws a party. And there's celebration and there's joy. And then the father sees the older son. And what does the father do? He goes out to that older son and he begs him to come in. He wants him to come into his house and he wants him to enjoy the celebration. He wants him to have joy with the younger son that's come home. But the older son won't do it, will he? He rejects the father's will. He rejects the father's ideology. He rejects the father's thinking. He won't submit himself to the father. And so what the older son is left with is a hell in his life by his own choice. The way C.S. Lewis described it this way is this. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say, thy will be done. Those who are in hell will be there because they prefer the choice of their own will and separation from Father. This picture that people are down there crying to God, please let us up. And God says, no, I won't do it now is not accurate in the Bible. In fact, when you look in Luke 16 and the man is carried to torment, does he beg Abraham to go over to his bosom? No. He doesn't want to go to Abraham's bosom. He wants to have service still. He wants to still be a king. What does he ask him to do? He says, hey, can you tell Lazarus to still be my servant? Go get some water and put it on my tongue. You see, this picture of hell where people are like trying to escape out is not accurate with the Bible. What hell is, is the choice to want to submit to my own self and have nothing to do with God. An eternal separation from God is what hell really is. And while it may be miserable, which I believe it will be, and torment and full of absolute frustration and misery, I don't know if people in hell will say, ah, I'd rather be with God. I think they choose their misery like the older brother than to submit to God. Hell is a separation from the Father, which is ultimate agony. And I believe that's what makes the work of Jesus Christ so mind-blowing. That He would look at the suffering of hell. That He would see the cup of the punishment and He would say, I'll drink that. That I'll experience, not by my own desire to be separated from the Father, but I'll experience that and come out of that. So that those of you that have lived this way can have a way out and back to the Father.
where there's real life. Boy, I hope that you can have, as we think about these doctrines, these teachings, these foundations, a worldview that looks at life from the truth of God, from the lens of Scripture, and see that you can have a belief system that makes sense with all the world and that cannot be shaken when life throws you its most difficult trials. And you can look forward to heaven with God where you will dwell with Him and enjoy Him forever and see what life is really all about. And we most certainly want to help you with that. Thank you very much for your patience tonight. And most certainly we'll be more patient if somebody needs to respond. You can come as we stand and sing.